the prerequisites for prevailing prayer. Prerequisites for prevailing prayer. And we started that about three weeks ago, but we always get to one point and then uh, never get past that. And is Nick in, Nick in the church? Great, so we won't have as many questions today. So. <laughs> <laughs> But wasn't he bold to ask those questions? Yeah, he's, a, he's a relatively new guy and he started asking four or five questions. I almost wanted to call him Diana. <laughs> so, here are the prerequisites for prevailing prayer. And uh, the first requisite for prevailing prayer we said is that if you want to, if you want to engage in prayer that contends, that fights, that overcomes, that conquers. That's the kind of prayer we're talking about. We're not talking about prayer for individual needs, which is what most churches engage in. And there's nothing wrong with that. God loves meeting my individual needs. But we're talking about the kind of prayer that has a cost to it. And some of the prerequisites for prevailing prayer, the first one is, if a church forgets its mission, it cannot pray uh, the kind of prayer that prevails, engages, contends, conquers. A church that forgets its mission. And so last week we said that churches forget their mission every two or three weeks. Churches forget their mission every two or three weeks. And we went over this last week, so I'm not going to take much time. That's, here's how our mission works. And when I say our mission, it's not specific to Acts 29, it's specific to every church that exists. So here's how it works. The, the job of the leaders is to make sure that individuals and families are equipped to the point, or discipled to the point, you can use any which word you want, equipped or discipled to the point, that they both demonstrate and profess the gospel and the teachings of Christ. They penetrate places with the gospel and the teachings of Christ that others don't normally go to. And they make sure that the gospel progresses, that it's not stagnant. Let me say that again. As leaders, it is the job of leaders in a church to make sure that every individual and every family begins to demonstrate and profess the gospel and the teachings of Christ. And that they penetrate places that the gospel wouldn't normally go to, where churches wouldn't normally go to. Churches as in the institution. So where are we taking the gospel? To our sphere of influence, to the streets we live in, to the secular society that we occupy, and the state of life we are in. And therefore we said last week that I cannot influence Jewish kids who want to learn the piano, but he can. I cannot influence those that may be learning how to be psychologists, but she can. I can't influence students in a school, but Jenny can. I can't influence truck drivers, but who can. And so it goes into spheres of influence, streets that we occupy, segments of society, and the stages of life that we are in. And this becomes the job of every person. Therefore, if you're going on holiday, you must think along the lines of, I am going on a holiday because my family and I need time. But our primary purpose during this holiday is, Father, how can we demonstrate and profess the gospel and the teachings of Christ while we are on holiday? How do we penetrate places that we go to our spheres of influence, the streets we walk in in Hawaii, the segment of society or the hotel we occupy, and the state of life we are in. Because not all of you know I go bungee jumping. I can't see Kamal bungee jumping. Um, I can't. So, 
I was just trying to reimagine it in my script code. Sorry, come on. And because I wouldn't think of that about myself either, come on. So we were in the same boat. If that makes you feel better. So now that we've taken it into these places, it doesn't matter whether you're on holiday or on work. This is how you think. And what is our intent of taking the gospel of Christ and his teachings? What is our intent? Our intent is it's the only way people can be rescued. It's the only way people can be rescued. There's just no other way people can be rescued. There is only one name under heaven and earth by which a person can be rescued from sin, sickness, physical danger, false doctrine, the penalty of sin, hell, death. There's only one name, and that name is the name of Jesus Christ. No other name. I mean, the word sozo, which basically is what rescue and salvation means, saves us from sin, from Satan, from the penalty of sin, from dangers, from physical death, oh, sorry, from uh, eternal death, from sickness. All of this is included. And there's only one name that can do it, and it's the name of Jesus. And so why are we doing this? Because, I mean, you have a cure for cancer. So, we do it because it rescues people and it transforms people. And the world is watching it. And that's why we have to both demonstrate and profess. Demonstrate and profess. And becomes the job of everyone from Wayne to Dagmar to the kids who've gone for Sunday school. Guys, this will be repeated at least 52 times over the next one year. So that it becomes like breathing. So that we don't think any other way. Because the church loses its mission every two or three weeks. We forget. Like I said last time, our reason for coming to church is I want to be a strong Christian. Jesus' reason for bringing people to this church and strengthening them is very different. He says, come to the church and be strengthened, as not come to a service. Be the church and be strengthened, so that you might pour out your life and have nothing left every week. That's the intent of being strong. Why be a strong church? So that you can pour out your life during the week. And then come back absolutely exhausted, so that you can be strengthened again. Any other reason for being strong? Ain't Christian. You're only strong so that you can be poured out. You're only rich so that you can be poured out. You're only amazingly talented so that it can be poured out. At the end of the day, I must expend everything in me so that there is nothing left, so that the Holy Spirit can again do a new work and fill again. Any questions on that? Okay. So, when the world is... Um, rescued and transformed, we then make disciples of them. And the intent of discipling is threefold. One, to become a disciple as in there is no other category in the Bible. You're either a disciple or you're not. Jesus didn't have any other category. We talked about that last week. He didn't have converts, he didn't have believers, he didn't have saints even. He all came up with that. He just had disciples. So one is a disciple, then two is to bring them into freedom. And we are still in the process. Why do you think we need discipling? We need discipline because there are still areas in your life and my life where there is fear, there is anxiety, there are addictions, there are psycho psycho psychological problems, there are mental issues, different things that you and I are suffering through. Backgrounds that we come from that have been so terrible and it still tells in our life right now. And therefore, discipling brings us into a place of greater freedom. I wish I was completely free. I'm not. And then the third one is establishing. Once you free somebody, you can establish them. To do what? To go to Jerusalem, to go to Judea, to go to Samaria, to go to the ends of the earth and make disciples. 
This is the mission of the church. When this becomes the mission of the church and this is all you eat and drink, a strange thing will begin to happen to you. Your prayers will change. This is why it's important to go over this point again and again and again. When your goal or purpose changes, your prayer, your attitude, and the way you use your resources change. It's always that No questions? Do you understand why it's important to keep harping on this? Because if this becomes a goal and a mission in the very air we breathe, then it begins to change the way we pray. Because everything is now about somebody else, somewhere else, something else. And in the process, God takes care of you because you're building His house, so He builds yours. Could you go on? No questions? I must have been kind of I don't know what happened last Okay, the second point which we went over four weeks ago is uh, so the first prerequisite for prevailing uh, prayer is uh, that the church must remember its mission, must break its mission, must not forget its mission, must not have amnesia. I read this amazing book, I think I've told you about it, Cinderella with Amnesia. Cinderella with Amnesia. And the book is about the church. That the church is Cinderella, she's lost her shoe, but she does not even remember that she does not have a shoe on and she doesn't remember where she lost it. What a beautiful title for a book, eh? Cinderella with Amnesia. Really old book, you won't find it anymore. And so true, we don't even remember what we meet for, other than strengthening our own selves, which is so not Christ-like. The Father sent His Son, made Him strong for one reason only, so that He can hang on a cross and throw Himself out for the sake of the world. And that is His only intent with now the Son that occupies the earth, His body, the church. I'm strengthening you so that you can pour yourself out for the rest of the world. Because many more have to be brought into the flock. I never get tired of saying this, guys. So get ready for another 51 repetitions. So, the second prerequisite for prayer is know the strength of your opposition. Know the strength of your opposition. Know the size and the nature of your opposition. But don't be too enamored by the size of your opposition because that does not bring breakthrough. Know the nature and the size of your opposition. So, you're not caught napping. And so this is straight out of Ephesians 6, 12, where it says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So none of our, our, um, none of our battles in prayer are against normal flesh and blood. Hey, in Colossians 1, 13, here's what it says. It says that you once used to belong to the kingdom of darkness. But when you were rescued by Jesus, Jesus transferred you out of the kingdom of darkness into the dominion of his son. So there's nobody in this room right now who did not exist in a kingdom that had only one purpose. Can I steal, kill and destroy your life so that you never get to see Jesus Christ who made you? Never get to see him. Hi guys. So that you never get to see him. I mean the very... Name, Kingdom of Darkness means absolute blindness. 
In another scripture, in 2 Corinthians 4, it says, The God of this world has blinded them from seeing the light. That's where everybody existed. Look at who blinds you. And we talked about this uh, four weeks ago. This is, all these are Greek words. And these Greek words mean, look, look, at, look at the spiritual array of powers that blinds the world. And this is why prevailing prayer is required if you want to break open bars of iron, open double gates, as it says in Isaiah 45 verses 1 and 2. And get the treasures of darkness. The treasures of darkness is not money. The treasures of darkness are precious, precious people that are hidden behind bars of iron, never able to see the light of Jesus Christ, who made them, who cares for them, who did everything to draw them back, and now wants his body to go and tell them. Simple. And so look at the, look at the forces, the demonic forces that are arrayed against us in the world. You just happen to be rescued out of there. This is when a, a, a whispered Praise God, you did that. Might end up being heard in heaven. So you want to try it? Praise God, you did that. Because we don't want to shout, we're Canadian. <laughs> but, but just imagine this, guys. Just imagine. All these powers were holding you back. RK means chiefs, as in humongous demonic forces. Chiefs, as in an archangel kind of demonic forces. Lucifer was one of them. Exusia, which means powers and principalities. Powers and principalities, where there are nations and regions where there is darkness that is um, so powerful that it's impossible for people to escape. And the strange thing is, sitting here are people from different nations that we were rescued by Christ. Eh? This is the amazing thing. The name of Christ can rescue you whether you're from India, Mongolia, the Middle East, Great Britain, Canada. Doesn't matter. Because the powers and principalities are everywhere. They just take on different shapes and forms. And then the third one was Cosmocrata, which is world rulers. World rulers. Where do you think ideologies come from? Where do you think religions come from? Where do you think um, mysticism comes from? Where do you think these come from? We don't have the sense to invent it. And then pneumaticos, which is bodiless spirits, bodiless spirits, I'm just giving you the plain Greek translation, bodiless spirits of depravity, bodiless spirits of depravity. When you begin to understand the size and the nature of opposition, then you begin to realize, ah, shucks, so we don't really wrestle against flesh and blood. There's no point getting angry with some guy who might be preaching a false doctrine, promoting a false ideology. Because behind it lies an array of forces that have to be dealt with. And when we begin to think like that, God begins to show us what to touch and what to undo. Therefore, when Paul goes into Ephesus, he knows that there is this um, goddess of Artemis that has to be brought down, that has to be undone. And in Ephesus, as he begins to speak, strange things begin to happen. People bring 50,000 drachmas worth of magic potions, charts, papers, papyrus. And they throw it and they burn it. What's being under the powers that were present there? Daniel knew this in Babylon. He knew what he was going up against. Moses knew it when he was standing before Pharaoh. And the Holy Spirit, who is absolutely filled with glee whenever there is a battle afoot is looking for people who will listen and say, sure, we learn how to pray correct. 
Any questions?
There is nothing like knowing what you must come against. And there is nothing like, there's no pleasure as seeing what you come against bowing and people being free. You must understand why the disciples came back absolutely overjoyed in Luke 10. When they said, Jesus, Jesus, you won't believe what happened. What happened? What happened, Peter? You won't believe what happened. I mean, I just wanted that demon to go at it. Fled and the man was set free. And Jesus wasn't saying, I don't want you to rejoice over demons being cast out. What he was saying is, hey, I'm really happy for you. But there's something even happier. And that is that your name is written in heaven. The killjoy way of preaching it is, don't get too excited about casting demons. Really, it is the most exciting thing that can happen to a person, man, when the person is set free from demons and then led to the Lord and gets saved. Getting the person saved now means not only is he free of demons, but he has a place for the rest of eternity in heaven. That is more joyful, but casting out demons is not less joyful. It is pretty fun. Questions? Thoughts? Oh, come on. No questions? You won't be put on probation. Feel free to ask questions. John's not here. <laughs> okay, let's move on to the next one. Hey, uh, um, Eric, do you have a thing? I mean, look at Ephesians 2, verse 2 and 3. When you follow the ways of the world and are the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us have lived among them. Um, this was how, hey Nick, hey. we were talking about you. Man, I was relieved you weren't coming and then you turned up. No, that was far enough. <laughs> Saying, God 
wants to grant you, out of the wealth of his splendor, a release of the power of the Holy Spirit, so that you comprehend him. Think of that. God wants to grant you a release of the power of the Holy Spirit so that you may comprehend who God is. Crazy. It's one of the prayers that I've started praying now, that every morning the Father, could you now release to me the power of your Holy Spirit, as it says in Ephesians 3.16, so that I may comprehend you. Because we're talking about someone who is immortal, eternal, invisible, wise. It's impossible to comprehend God. And yet God gives us an out or a clause in Ephesians 3.16 saying, Hey, but here's something I want to do for you. Why don't you ask me to release to you the power of the Holy Spirit so that he may help you in comprehending me? Start your days like this. Ask the Spirit of God. Because 1 Corinthians 2 puts it brilliantly. Who knows God? The Spirit of God. Who knows you? Your Spirit knows you. Who knows God? The Spirit of God knows him. He plums the depths of the Father and brings to you who the Father really is. So why not start the day of saying, and this is so important for us, because eh? our minds are dull in a sense, because how do you comprehend, how does, that, how does someone who is blind from birth comprehend the sunrise or the sunset? And now multiply that a million times, and that's what we are trying to do. And yet you have His Spirit who knows Him, who plums the depths of His um, eternal life and then says, Jacob, let me show you something about your father that you haven't seen yet. And I always like say, there'll never be an end to it because it's infinite, so there'll never be a point in our life where we say, aha, God, finally I got you. No. But to spend the rest of our life every day asking the Holy Spirit, can you show me a little bit more of the Father? This is why Paul keeps repeating it at different times in different words. In Ephesians 1.18 he says, Will you enlighten my eyes, O God? Will you enlighten my eyes? Ephesians 1.18, this is that. Ephesians 1.18. And it's a very long sentence, so I won't read it because Paul really didn't know how to write short sentences. Ephesians 1.18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of the mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realm, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. Amazing, he put a full stop off. The point is this, guys, that it's the Spirit of God who, if you ask Him every day, will open this up for you. Ephesians 3.16, use it. Guys, we must understand how, how the Spirit of God yearns to make the Father known. You have, you have no idea. Think of how much you've yearned over someone. Or if you're a mother or a father, think of how much you've yearned over your child. Or if you're a mother or a father, a brother or sister who's had a younger brother or sister, and think of how you've yearned over your child, especially when the child is not doing well. How you long for the child to do well. 
Multiply that a million times and you will get the heart of the Holy Spirit saying, I yearn over you, Jacob, to make the Father known a little more. Catch a glimpse of him that you haven't caught. Show you a sight of him that you haven't seen yet. He yearns for it. Is there scripture for it? Yes, in James chapter 4 it says the Spirit of God yearns jealously over you. There's a possessiveness that he has because he knows you are the father's son or daughter and he loves letting the father be known to his sons and daughters. Yearns over you. All the more reason why we should pray Ephesians 3.16. It enlightens our mind, it opens our eyes and makes us see things that we would otherwise not be able to see. What a brilliant God, huh? Furnishes us with everything so that we can partake in his divine life. First Peter, okay. second Peter. So one of the main ministries of the Holy Spirit is not that we speak in tongues, though he gives us gifts in tongues. One of the main ministries of the Holy Spirit is, very simple, it is to make the power and the presence of Christ real to you. To make the power and the presence of Christ real to you. This is what the Old Testament prophets, priests and kings used to enjoy because they were the only ones who could have the privilege where Yahweh would be made known to them by the falling on them of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit would come upon them, Isaiah would prophesy, David would begin to do amazing things, even Saul prophesied. But now there's no prophet, priest, king distinction, it's everybody and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit is, now that I live in you and you are my temple, can I make the power and the presence of God really real to you? Drink it up like you're drinking. Let's go for water. I was thinking of some other drink. But not everyone would think that's healthy. Oh, it was not alcohol. Ephesians 1, 18 to 20, we've already read. Guys, the eyes of our understanding, the eyes of our understanding need to be open. Ephesians 1, 18, we just read that. But the eyes of our understanding are opened in three ways. Time, teachability, trainability. These are the three, thing, three things that open up the eyes of our understanding. I know how to spell trainability, but it's spelled wrong there. Um, so, one of the ways the eyes of our understanding is open is when we spend enough time with the Holy Spirit saying, Hey, Holy Spirit, I'm really yearning for this, just, to, just like you are to teach me. So, could you show me from the Word? And God begins to open up the Word. Because at the end of the day, who's the author of the Word but the Spirit of God? The second one is teachability, and that happens indirectly through situations like this, whereas I'm talking to you, you're saying, Oh, shucks, I've read that before, but now it makes sense. Teachability. There's nothing that's copyrighted in the church, eh? Anything that I'm telling you, I must have heard it somewhere. So feel free to take these truths and market them. As in, do what Isaiah 55 tells you to do. Ho! Is anyone thirsty? Is anyone hungry? Come! For I have bread for you. Eat! And you don't even have to pay for it. That's what Isaiah 55 says. You do the same thing. So the second, the second way we have the eyes of our understanding open is through teachability. God uses people to teach us, like it's happening right now. And the last one is trainability. Because God says you can't be just hearers of the word but doers, it requires that, that when I hear something, that I do something with it. Because I just can't be a hearer, I have to be a doer. Therefore, when these three things come together, 
you'll find that your growth begins to accelerate rapidly. I would suggest to you that the reason Paul did phenomenally well, even though he was a man, he was a man born out of time and didn't actually have a meeting with Jesus in his physical body, the reason Paul did so well is perhaps because of this. He goes off into the deserts of Damascus in Saudi Arabia and spends time there. Christ revealed himself to Paul directly. This is why Paul always says, it's my gospel that I'm, and this is what I say in my gospel. Why? Because he received the story of Christ directly from Christ. First Corinthians 11, he says, and now let me uh, give to you what Christ gave to me. And he says, he starts breaking bread. And then the second thing was teachability. He learned. He learned under Gamaliel. He learned under Peter and James when he went to visit them in Jerusalem. He was learning. And finally, trainability. That guy just didn't sit on what he learned. He actually went to practice it. What does he do three days after getting saved? Goes and starts preaching Christ. Get these three things and you'll find your life accelerating. Any questions? There's some nugget of truth that I've always gotten from others. I may build on it, but I always get it from someone somewhere else. Okay, but you also get it from Holy Spirit. Yeah, I do. But uh, there's a second part, the teachability part. Yeah. Any questions? Okay. The other thing we need to know if we if we, if we need to do if we want to know the risen and ascended Christ. This guys, um, understand that one of the reasons Jesus Christ rose again and is seated in heavenly places and actually thinks you are seated there with him is because he loves showing you kindness. Go to Ephesians 2.6. I know we've talked about this before, but it's so worth visiting. Ephesians 2.6. Ephesians 2.6. Look at what it says, man. This is beautiful. It says that in Ephesians 2.6, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And so now that's a truth. It's, a, it's not something that's going to happen in the future. It is something that, it's, it's how God thinks. Because, because the life that you presently possess is the indissoluble eternal life of Christ. The moment you receive Christ, the old you died and you got a brand new spirit. And you are saturated and full of the Holy Spirit, and Christ lives in you. Galatians 2.20 It is no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. And the life that I now live by live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and died for me. So Christ actually believes that you are seated with him in heavenly places. But look why, look why. Verse 7 Seated with him in the heavenly realms of Christ Jesus, in order that in coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Guys, Jesus loves being kind to you. He enjoys being kind to you. Why is this important to recognize the risen and ascended Christ as one who is kind? Because when you realize how kind he is, you will stop casting suspicions on his character. <coughs> One of our biggest problems living here on earth and praying is we're not sure that God is kind. I'm talking about kindness that comes out of tremendous compassion and love. 
It's not kindness that comes out of, I got money in my pocket, I'd like to give you some. It's not kindness that comes out of, it's Sunday, therefore I will be kind. There is no kindness month in heaven. Every month serves kindness. And so one of the things Jesus is, is extremely kind, extremely kind. And the more you realize how loving and kind he is, the less you will cast suspicion on his character. Therefore, when you are sick, you will not go and think, Jesus is doing this so that uh, I may learn a lesson. Jesus is doing this because he's trying to punish me so that I might change. Jesus is doing this because he wants an angel in heaven. That one sucks. Jesus is doing this. Just different reasons. Or when something goes wrong and you've caused it, you are the one who's done wrong. You are the one who messed up. You're the one who committed the mistake and hurt people. In the midst of that, there is a God who is kind. And he just comes swooping down with kindness. He's got talons of kindness. Just digs into your flesh. And it doesn't hurt because it's kind. Swoops you and picks you up. If we get used to the kindness of God, we start, we'll stop casting <coughs> suspicion on this brilliant face. Because we are not sure of his kindness, the stuff that we put on. And it's impossible to engage in prevailing prayer that overcomes the enemy and sets people free if you're not convinced in your heart, regardless of your circumstances, whether you made them happen or whether someone else did it, or whether the devil did it. This one thing I'm sure of. Oh God, you are kind, you are fair, you are just, and you are good. This is inviolable, non-negotiable. Nothing on earth changes this. Any questions? I'm not done, I'm just closing my mind. <coughs> Any questions? So in Jeremiah 15, 19, Jeremiah goes to a time where he's been prophesying, he's been doing things. It's not working out well. And at one point, Jeremiah says to God that you are like a deceptive brook that flows intermittently, sometimes stops, sometimes it's on. You're like a deceptive brook. And because it's Jeremiah, God turns to Jeremiah and says, if you don't stop casting suspicion on my nature, and if you don't separate the nonsense from what is true, I will stop using you as my mouthpiece. Because I can't use you if this is the way you think of me. Amazing, eh? Because if I'm not convinced of his goodness, I'll have to sell him. As in, whenever a salesman is not convinced of the product, you have to do the spin. But when someone is convinced of a product, you're not a salesman. You're just a promoter of something that is so valuable to you that you don't need to be paid for it, man. You know, there's no spin doctrine. It comes out of your understanding of who he is. He is kind. He's kind to his enemies. He's kind to those that persecute him. He's kind to those that defy him. He's kind to the rebellious. He's kind to those that don't know him yet. He's kind to those that are in the clutches of Satan. He's kind to those that are killing Christians in different parts of the world. He's kind to murderers, rapists, child molesters. He is kind to them. Can you believe that? And they don't even know him. Sorry, Joe. It is. Yep. 
Oh my God, when you put down the list of people that he's kind to and then put yourself, who has been redeemed, rescued, is an actual son or daughter of God. How dare you and I question the one thing that he always has been, super loving, super kind, full of compassion, that comes from almost the sense of a mother's womb. That's how he talks about Rahem, compassion. This is who he is. I hate it when I doubt his kindness. I think no other wound is more of a stab into his person than when I stop thinking of him as kind. After the attempt that Lucifer, that the serpent made in the garden, really, I'll tell you the truth, he doesn't want you to have everything he has. He does not want you to have his kind of understanding and knowledge. If they had waited, if Adam and Eve, Eve had waited, imagine what God would have taught them. Every day teaching them a little more, a little more, a little more. Infinite God. We would have been learning things about God even today. Cast suspicion on the nature of God and you immediately will have the devil whispering in your ear. Every time you doubt or cast suspicion on the nature of God, the serpent will begin whispering. Guaranteed, eh? Every time you cast suspicion on the nature of God or question certain aspects of who he is, obviously this, the serpent starts whispering. You're right, he doesn't really want to give that to you. You're right, he has no desire to do this for you. You're right, this is all your fault and you're done. You're right, it's not good enough. He just starts whispering. He started that in the Garden of Eden. He's not creative, he does the same things. Any questions? Yeah. Yeah. The acts of God. Even your insurance policy has acts of God. Acts of God. God is a kind God, guys. He's not a God who likes being appeased. Appeasement is when someone is so angry that you're going to bribe, dance, sing, suck up to them. I ain't talking about Jehovah. Because you never have to appease Jesus. No offering, no worship, no nothing will appease him. He's a kind God. Jesus didn't die to appease God's anger. Because that means he was angry till about 2,000 years ago and then suddenly changed. And he decided, hmm, time to change over and start afresh. Let me be kind now. He's always been kind. The first thing he does on, um, on Mount Sinai uh, in Exodus 33 when he reveals himself is, I am Jehovah, gracious and compassionate. Kind. He reveals who he is right then and there. We talk about what about wrath and appeasement and atonement another day, because I know some of you are thinking that. So hold on to that thought, but you'll find that it's not contradictory. Like I always say, in Christianity, so many things exist in tension, not as contradiction. Tension. Gravity, aerodynamics, both have to work for a plane to fly. It's the same way in Christianity. Next thing, the critical cost of uh, prevailing prayer 
that we have to pay. These guys uh, recognize the significance of being part of the body. Recognize the significance of being part of the body if you want to engage in prayer that actually brings results beyond your individual needs and self. If you go to Ephesians 1.21, Ephesians 1.21, Ephesians 1.21. Ephesians 1.21. Here's what it says. Um, oh, shucks, I'm going to read this. Ephesians 1.21. Yeah. Far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. 22. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed Jesus Christ to be head over everything. For who? For the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Why read this? Guys, it is impossible for an individual or a group of individuals to engage in prevailing prayer because one of the things God wants to do is spread his aroma, the fragrance of life through the people called his church. One of the things that's hardest for a church to do is get people together to pray. You can get them together for fellowship, you can get them together for the prophetic, you can get them together for teaching. But the one thing that it's very hard for every church to do is get people together for prayer. Partly because when a church realizes, oh shucks, if we actually gather as a people and can engage in prevailing prayer, the enemy will do everything to stop. Because Christ is head for the sake of the church at whose feet things have been placed, fills his body with himself so that we can use the power that he has. I, uh, remember I showed you this picture last time and I talked to Prashant about it later. I poured water on Prashant's head, remember? And it flowed down his beard and flowed down to, down to his clothes. The intent was Psalm 133. The benefits of Christ are fully recognized only when you are part of the body. As an individual believer, it is impossible to recognize or realize all of Christ. Impossible. It's not possible. Take your elbow out, take your nose out, take your eye out, take your knee out, leave, leave it on the floor, and it is impossible for your elbow, knee, eye, or nose to benefit from your body anymore. Why? Because it's just being disconnected. And as it lies there disconnected, it still looks like a part of the body, but it does not draw from the life of the head. Why? Because it's being disconnected. And therefore, to engage in prevailing prayer, the kind of prayer that contends, that battles, that overcomes, you have to see yourself from Sunday to the next Sunday as part of this thing called the body of Christ and not something that ends in an hour from now. I know I've said this before, but it's so worth saying, at least for the tape of people who haven't heard this knew a lady who used to have an artificial leg and she would come to church and you wouldn't know she had an artificial leg till she put it up and then you realize that her right leg was a prosthetic limb. When she would go to bed, she would remove that prosthetic limb, put it on the side and she would sleep without that leg. During the night, that leg was separate from the body, didn't look like part of the body, didn't have the same texture or feel. It was absolutely disconnected. 
In the morning, she would pick it up and put it back on, and it would look like the rest of the body. That is sometimes our existence, and it is anti-biblical. At the end of the service, one cannot disconnect the limb and put it on the side to come back to church next Sunday. It is wrong. I have to begin to think that throughout the week, I'm part of this people. Or whoever, or wherever you go, I'm a part of this people. Their business is my business. My life is owned by them, their life is owned by me. There is this thing called relational ownership when you begin to become part of the church. It is a strange, uncomfortable, anti-Western thing. Because we like our individualism and Jesus came to undo that and make us little fragments that are put together as one loaf. Broken every time we break communion. Just to show us that my body was broken so that you guys could be put back together. I know a guy in South Africa who had a false limb and uh, his uh, daughter was telling me, you won't believe this, I, I told the story that I just told you and she said, you won't believe this Jacob, he wasn't much of a Christian, but when he got buried he insisted that his false leg also go into the coffin with him. I don't know why I said that, I know how to connect that, it's an angry particular meaning, but I'm sure I'll come up with something in the future. But the point is this, you got to be part of one. And when you are, guys, here's the thing, eh? you have no idea the protection that is offered to you because you're part of one. Satan hates it when people connect to the body. Satan loves it when it's only a connection on a Sunday. Hates it when people connect to the body, where they actually see themselves every day as I am part of this thing called the body of Christ, that I am actually concerned about everyone else I'm connected to and they are concerned about me. That I will do everything in my power to foster this thing called one another. When you begin to think like that, it becomes Satan-proof. Any questions on that before we move on? I mean, it's strange, eh? James 5, 17. Uh, what makes the effective prayer of a righteous man? It talks about the, the, the prayer of a righteous, the fervent prayer of a righteous man is dynamic and has great effect. It's talking about Elijah. But look at the preceding verses. It says there that, listen, this is what you need to do. Confess your sins to one another, your false steps, your offenses, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The heartfelt and persistent prayer of a righteous man is dynamic and has tremendous power and can accomplish much. What is the intent there? That right relationships are critical to prevailing prayer. If you want to have dynamic, effective prayer, then it is critical that I be in right relationship with the people that I have been placed amongst. Because the oil always flows from the head, not to the elbow, not to the toe, but it flows down the head to the beard to the rest of the body. So when I remove myself from the body, so when I decide that I will only be part of the body on Sunday, all I get is what happens in the body for one and a half hours and that is insufficient to sustain a Christian life. But when I begin to think along the lines of, I am relationally owned by you 24-7, that I belong to you, that I am at your service, that one anothering is a critical part of my Christianity, that everything that God does begins to flow right through the congregation. When manna falls, everybody collects it. When the quail comes, everybody grabs it. When the rocks 
um, you break senses, water comes up, everybody drinks of it, everyone's sandals don't wear out, everyone's clothes stay well, the pillar of cloud is warmed in the night, the shade of cloud is shade in the on summer days. It becomes something that everybody enjoys. This is how it's supposed to be. It's just that we haven't seen this enough. Just because we haven't seen this enough does not mean that we don't make it a reality. Someone has to show it so that someone else can have it. Someone must show it so that someone else can have it. Go ahead, show you. Just have an example um, about that. We have the women's group. You got it. Oh, <laughs> no worries there. Just, just a small example. Um, about I think a month ago, and we did prayer, and I just reached out to one of the women's group who have an app, and um, just asked for prayers, and automatically all these women pray, and then what I did was the next day. So I think, um, yeah, outside the church. Yeah, it is important. The thing is. When we say outside the church, we mean outside the two hours we spend together on Sunday. When God says outside the church, he means out there when you're not part of his body. It's critical that I see myself relationally owned by you. And I actually do. And when I forget, I remind myself, you are owned relationally by someone else. It's what Ruth said to Naomi. Never forget that, guys. It's an Old Testament story. But listen to the strength of it. Your people will be by people. You know what that means? It's a scary thought. But the Webs are no longer Joan's primary family. She's got another new family. That the Watsons are no longer her heritage. She's got a new family. Your people will be my people. Ruth, Naomi at least came from an Israeli background. Ruth was a Moabitess. And she's saying, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. When we begin to pursue this Christ together, egging each other on, spurring each other to good works, one another That's the intent of one another It's not that your family becomes less important. It's not that your family becomes unimportant. It becomes secondary. As in your family line, your heritage. Jesus did this. Who are my mothers and mine? Brothers. Scary man if you're actually going to live like a church. This is the wrong message to speak when new people have just come to me. Should have chosen a nicer thing. But come back next week, it might be nice. There's no guarantee, okay? So, um, yeah, the, and so relational ownership. Your people shall be my people, your God shall be my God. Where you go, there I will go. Where you die, I will die. Nuts, man. That's relational ownership. This doesn't mean that you can't go to Victoria and settle there like the vets are going to do in five or six months, though we don't want them to go. It just means that when we commit, we commit to an extent that the world cannot understand. Otherwise, our commitments are as shallow as the Rotary Club or the Lions Club. Here are some things that really work against uh, prevailing prayer in a church. Isolation. 
Isolation is when a problem eighteen one. It's a horrible verse, but it's a striking verse. Problem eighteen one. First time I read it, I thought to myself, "Oh shucks, Lord, I better not privatize my Christian life." Proverbs 18.1 An unfriendly man. In some versions it says, a man who isolates himself, pursues selfish ends, he defies all sound judgment. A man who isolates himself, pursues selfish ends, and he defies all sound judgment. You cannot live life together alone. You cannot live life together alone. Isolation goes makes it very difficult to engage in prevailing, prevailing prayer, allowing bitterness makes it very hard. Isolation, allowing bitterness makes it very hard. Guard against this, because this is one of the things that will begin to happen when a church begins to engage in um, um, prevailing prayer, which we will. So make sure that you don't isolate yourself. Make sure you don't, don't allow bitterness to start devouring each other. That's in Galatians 5.15 and that's in Proverbs 18.1. Make sure you don't fall for either of these. Eh? Any questions before we move on to the next point? Uh, two more points. Any questions? A man who isolates himself has his own selfish gains in mind. He defies Sanja. Because I liked a Christianity that was privatized, that was on my own terms, that was when I wanted things to happen. That's called self-will. Self-will. Bible says a man who self-willed and contrary usually ends up in trouble, and I end up in trouble so often. Self-will. Sometimes it's not the devil. The devil just knows that Jacob, you're a guy who likes being self-willed. So let me give you what you need to be self-willed. That's how you end up in trouble. It's not the devil, it's not addiction, it's not some kind of attack. It's just self-will. That was my point. Still is every now and then. Any questions? Nick, any questions? You're still allowed to ask questions even though you went through your quota in one day. Oh my lord, let's move on. <laughs> I'm just kidding, man. I really enjoyed your questions. I just thought it was, um, it, it, I, I just thought those questions were well thought of, and uh, that they were questions that others wanted to ask. I was just surprised that you've been here only for two or three months and you had the courage to do it. And uh, I applaud you for it, but I don't want to encourage you. Because <laughs> the last time I encouraged uh, Diana with questions, which was 13 years ago, she's still asking. So, <laughs> Sending mixed messages here. Yeah, at the end of the day, you don't know whether you should or you should not. Another critical cost of prayer is um, uh, if you want to prevail in prayer, you have to build faith under the cover, under the covers of order. Sounds like an all like sentence, so I'll explain it. Um, see, for prevailing prayer, as in the kind of prayer that 
Prevailing doesn't mean, oh, we got to pray until the sun comes up. No. Prevailing prayer is the kind of prayer where Jacob fights the angel and won't let go. Hey, I'm not letting you go till you bless me. Prevailing prayer is not some kind of long drawn prayer. It's prayer that contends, that engages, that does not let go, that has a bulldogishness to it and sticks with it till what needs to be done is received. That's all it means. It can take two hours, it can take 24 hours, it doesn't matter. Once we finish talking about the prerequisites of prevailing prayer, we'll actually go into actually what it looks like. Go ahead. No, it doesn't mean 24 hours of consistency. I'm just saying, it, we're not talking about, when we talk about prevailing, I always get this idea of a woman in labor and that frightens me. So that's not where I'm going with this. And I know nothing about that, but it still frightens me. Uh, so uh, it's not that, and oh, you got to. It, it, it's something that can happen immediately or it can take time. So it's prevailing prayer requires faith, but this faith must be built under the covers of order, meaning when new buildings are built, they put a fence around it and you don't know what's happening within the fence. It's that way. Because there's a faith that has to be developed within you, but that, has, that faith has to submit to order. It's a faith that is rarely talked about in churches, but Jesus marveled at it. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 9 and 10. Matthew chapter 8, verse 9 and 10. It says, For I am also a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, Go, and he goes. And to another, Come, and he comes. And to my servant, Do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled. It was the story of the centurion. Why is it important that we build faith under submission or order? Because the one thing the devil always tries first is the very thing he tried first in the Garden of Eden, which is what? Can I bring you out of order and cause you to rebel? Because that's exactly what I did in the backyard of heaven. That is exactly what I did in Eden. And can I try it again with you? And if we can do that, then he knows that he has snaked his way into what is being built. And at the right time, he can rear his head and cause the thing to collapse just when it's beginning to take off. So when it comes to prevailing prayer, it is critical that I learn to build faith under the canopy or the cover of order. Because you've got mighty warriors in churches who have great faith and if they were to stand could rub satanic forces, but they aren't submitted to order. And so they fall in the battlefield because Satan resists their authority prolongs the battle, exhausts them, brings money, sex, or power into the equation, and they always fall. And you don't have to be a well-known figure for that to happen. You can be an ordinary nobody. It's just that when you're a well-known figure, more damage is caused. If you're an ordinary person, just your family hurts. Now, if I'm not submitted to order in my faith, as in when I exert faith, if I'm not doing that in a way that submits to order, and God has different forms of order set for us as Christians, every episode that Paul writes ends with how to live an orderly life in a world that is disorderly and rebellious. Every, every fifth or sixth chapter of every one of Paul's letters is about that. 
He spent so much time putting what remains in order. When that doesn't happen, you may be extremely powerful, but the authority that it requires in there, so your battles are prolonged, they exhaust you. And when, they, when you're exhausted, and you're walking up and down your balcony when you should be at war, that's when Bathsheba turns up for a battle. That's what happens. So I'd suggest to you that if you were to engage in prevailing prayer, and this church will, and if you were to begin to take part in it, please make sure that in orderly structures you are under authority, that I am under authority. I submit in authority to this church. I do not do anything without checking with at least one or two leaders. When I'm in trouble, I call the leaders. When I, I'm unsure, I call the leaders. When I make a decision, I call the leaders. There's nothing I say to the church that someone else already doesn't know. I'm talking about leaders who are sometimes 20 years younger than me. And sometimes 20 years older. Thank God there are people older than me now in this church. But it can be at school, it can be in marriage, it can be at work, it can be with government, it can be with your taxes. Make sure you're under order when you come to fight against that enemy. Who is the master of confusion and dishonor? We must be able to say like Jesus when we pray for things that the prince of the world has come but he has nothing in me. The prince of the world has come but he has nothing in me. Why? Because when there is no darkness in you, you can overcome the darkness. Strive towards it. It's absolutely possible. It's absolutely possible. It's no big deal, guys. When it comes to dealing with other powers, this element is critical. It's a type of faith that's rarely taught, where this faith is able to dismiss rulers of darkness with a word, but it's built under the covers of submission and order. Which is why Jesus marveled, eh? Because this centurion is saying, I'm a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go. And he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Jesus, you can do the same because you are under authority. If Jesus was under authority, what makes you think you and I can do without it? This is why churches love being individual Christians who turn up on a Sunday and do not have to be connected to authority, order. My sin is my business. Church is your business. I'll turn up, I'll listen to your sermon, I'll do the worship. I'll pay my offering, but don't bother me during the rest of the week. This is why we love it. Because we are we love being authorities unto ourselves. I'm an authority unto myself. If I come and ask you why you're coming late to church every Sunday, you don't like it. What business is it of yours? At least I'm turning up. No, your life is my business now, just as my life is your business. There's no MYOB when it comes to church. Stunned silence, but it's a clue. Go ahead, man.
saying that if there is a law that does not contravene what the Bible says, that the government imposes, then I'm called to be a good citizen and uh, obey it. Romans 13 says that most governments mean good. There are some governments that don't. If it contravenes what the Bible says, then I must take a stance against it, which is more difficult. But if it does not, and it's meant for the welfare of people, and this is Paul writing when Rome was ruled by Caesar and it was tyrannical. And Romans 13 talks about it. Therefore, there's an obligation on my part to fulfill the rules that are set by the government. Yes. Every time, every time I speak, Realize I'm speeding, I have two choices slow down or uh, um, look at the traffic behind me and realize that that's a flow of traffic. If I slow down anymore, Derek's going to hit the backside of my car or uh, pull off to the right lane and uh, slow down. I know it's frustrating to drive at 50, but move to Germany. Uh, don't, because we have enough missing today. <laughs> Don't move to Germany. That was not a prophetic word yeah. So, unfortunately, when it comes to driving, ah, I hate it when people bring up driving because I have to now pay more attention to it. <laughs> Any other questions, guys? You know, it's all as soon as you, as soon as a believer, disciple of Christ, gets a ticket, he changes his way of driving. He changes his way of driving. Someone in this church got a ticket recently, and he's looking at me and smiling. But I won't look at him, so you won't know who he is. Uh, whenever I'm looking this side, it means the guy must be on that side. Yeah, so. so <laughs> So, and you should see his driving. Now when he drives, it is so, so easy now. <laughs> wow, that's a word of confidence in you, um, who I'm not looking at. <laughs> Here's what it says in Romans 13. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. <laughs> for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of one in authority? Then do what is right and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the soul for nothing. He is God's servant and he is wrapped in the punishment of the wrongdoers. Therefore it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. The authorities and God's servants who give their full time to government. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If this honor, then Man! It's almost as if Paul knows what's happening today. It's amazing how God covers everything. Eh? Let's take the last one. Uh, the last prerequisite that uh, truth and righteousness. Truth, truth, and righteousness. Truth and righteousness. 
is a critical factor in prevailing prayer. In Isaiah 11.5, it's a beautiful scripture, if you can learn it by heart, it's good. In Isaiah 11.5, it says, Righteousness will be your belt. Righteousness will be your belt. And faithfulness will be the sash around your waist. The sash around your waist. Faithfulness here says of the word is fidelity to the truth. Fidelity to the truth. That's what it means. Isaiah 11 5. Righteousness shall be a belt, and faithfulness sash around your waist. And this is what is then reflected in Ephesians 6, uh, verse 14, where it says, The belt of truth and the Breastplate of righteousness. Critical if you want to uh, engage in the prevailing kind of prayer we're talking about. Why? Because here's the odd thing in, in the armor or the picture of a soldier that Paul paints in Ephesians 6, where he talks about wrestling against not flesh and blood, but spiritual forces. The belt served an amazing function. It carried the sword, it also girded the loins, and it had straps that connected to the breastplate. And so when the belt of truth is broken, what you lose is a breastplate that is not in place, or righteousness that is not in place, not in place. A sword that you grab and it ain't there because it's out of place and your loins which are strength not girded loins are always a figure of speech for strength in the Bible not girded not ready and that's what happens when the belt of truth is missing I find this so alarming and at the same time such a thing that I need to focus on because when Untruth works itself into my life, then I lose my ability to wield the sword, which is the only offensive weapon I have, because everything is killed with a double-edged sword when it comes to the enemy or when it comes to things that are false and true. Everything is a double-edged sword of the spirit. And when truth is not something that is important to me in my life, then what begins to happen is I'm unable to wield the sword. This is what you begin to go into error. Because whenever truth is not loved, it's only a matter of time before delusion comes in. First Thessalonians talks about this. In First Thessalonians 2 it says, when people refuse or resist or reject the truth, delusion is waiting in the wings to make an entry. And so when Jacob, and this has happened, you know, in 1984, when I first came to Canada, or 95, I see a dream. And in this dream, I... I'm walking around and I've got a belt and I see a crack on the belt and I don't pay attention to it and I keep walking and time passes by and the crack begins to grow to, to a point where the actual belt snaps because I didn't pay attention to the first crack that developed. And it's very easy, I didn't need to go to some famous dream interpreter for that one. It was that Jacob focused on truth, man, your belt is tearing because you don't love the truth enough 
You're okay with a few exaggerations here, a few untruths there, a few deceptions here. You're okay with that. You're behaving like Jacob from the Old Testament, not like Israel. So stop being someone who doesn't think much of the truth. Every now and then I have to remind myself, because when you lose sight of the truth, when it's no longer important, when it's not precious, then strangely enough, delusion is waiting in the wings to make a grand entry. And when it does, you find that you're not able to wield the sword. You're stuck in ways of thinking that are now 20 years old, 30 years old, 40 years old. And the truth loses its ability to cut into your life because the belt has never been many. The other thing that happens is when truth is not focused on the breastplate of righteousness, that which protects your vital organs, that which is right relationship with God, right relationship with children, right relationship with myself, and right relationship with my environment, which is basically what righteousness is, is out of sync, man. And therefore, I begin to question my relationship with God, my relationship with children, my relationship with myself, and my relationship with people around me. It is affected. Why? Because the belt of truth is missing. And finally, my loins are not girded with strength, as in, Loins uh, girded with strength, basically in the book uh, of uh, Ephesians, basically says, your strength must be girded with your belt. And when the belt is loose, your strength is not girded. It is spread all over the place. It does not have focus. Your strength is just all over the place. And that is in the way God wants it. Strength girded, ready to run, like a trained thoroughbred stallion, waiting to hear the king's command, dash into wherever he wants to dash into. Whether it be down Buckingham Palace or into some Flanders field where you die. And when there is a lack of love for truth, just listen to me, a lack of love for truth. How do you know a person loves truth? You must see truth happening in their lives. It is not enough to have a love for truth. The knowledge of truth must work itself into your life. How do you know if Jacob loves the truth? Very simple. Is the truth working out, shining out, being made visible through my life? Truth that is not made visible is sheer information. Truth that is not practiced, that is not demonstrated is sheer information. Revelation, tons of revelation is coming out for the church. But when it's not demonstrated, all revelation becomes knowledge. And here's what happens when Jacob increases in knowledge. Knowledge puffs Jacob up. Knowledge puffs you up. To war against what we have to war against and prevail so that people may be set free. In the places we touch, be the New York City, I mean, I, 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 I've, uh, I found a hotel that overlooks Times Square. Why take it? Why can't you go to some place where you can sit and it's in the boondocks in New York? Why? Because ages ago, when I first became a Christian, I remember reading David Wilkerson's Teen Challenge books. Cross on the switchblade. And then, after I read David Wilkerson's books, I began to take an interest in David. Because in teaching him, he was a guy who was unafraid. And every time I'd read this, and this was just within months of coming to Canada, I would be able to pick up his books because I worked for Teen Challenge for six months. And there was material available. I'd pick up his and I'd read that. 
tested the risk dismantle. I built a church in Times Square, a lot of stuff that happened. I'm not going to visit that church. But for me, as, 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 as silly as this sounds, it'll be, it'll, be a, it'll be such a cool thing to stand there and pray for that city. Saying, oh God, I don't know what Acts 29 is supposed to do here, but whatever seed we can sow here, we would love to sow. Because there was a man who long ago sowed seeds here. Wasn't very popular. People didn't want him around because he would speak things too blatantly. Wasn't accepted. Changed that city for the better. Wasn't popular, but that's the kind of legacy we want to leave, right? Unpopular legacies that affect lives. Jesus was very unpopular. If you have a daughter, I mean, if you guys, if some of you who get married or are married eventually have a child, and the child is a daughter, please name her Alice here. I've always wanted to name someone that, unfortunately, I have to get married first, and that's who I cost to pay to name a child. So. So, but uh, it's not important, guys. I'm not saying name the child Alethea. But uh, you know what the word Alethea means? It carries in it the sense of truth. But it doesn't mean truth. It's such a beautiful word. It means non concealment. Ah, oh, it does something to me. Non concealment. That's what Alethea means. Where I begin to live a life that is not concealed, that has no masks that has no pretense. Where my life gets to a point where it becomes so transparent that it's unconceived, it is non-conceived. That's what Alethea means. Non-conceivement. And that's what truth eventually looks like. For Christianity, truth is not a concept, it's a person. And he was a person who was unconceived, he was fully revealed, non-conceived. He was that kind of a person. And at the end of the day, freedom isn't freedom till it's transparent. Freedom isn't freedom till it's transparent. How do you know you're free? Your life is getting more transparent. That you can see less. And what happens when your life gets transparent? They see Jesus. Because the opaqueness of the veil of your flesh is undone and people see Jesus. That is the essence of freedom, the essence of truth. No one can see. Ah, if we could yearn for this, because for freedom we were set free. But this is what freedom looks like. When Jacob has very little now to conceive. Not conceived. That is real freedom where people get more transparent. What a beautiful thing to work towards, eh? And you have your life to work towards it. If I could say when you die, and some of you may die before me, 
I was a desire of this state of fact. Uh, I would love to say about you that here lies somebody who is so transparent, who lived a life so transparent. I'd love to say that about you. And if I die after you, I need a few more years to work on this. I pray that you will be in the same that Jacob worked to a place where he became more and more transparent. I'd love that. Any questions? Transparent doesn't mean this is who I am, this is what you get. That's not transparent, that's just I'm not willing to work on myself, but you have to live with it. That's not transparent. Transparent is Christ to see eventually. Christ to see. Questions, guys? Just a comment, Jacob. You're doing pretty good at that already. Thank you, Diana. Someone make sure that she's invited to my funeral. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, Diana, thank you. I had to say something funny because it was very nice of you to see that. Any questions, guys? Cool. So let's go back to, with this new knowledge of what we know about God, sing to him some more. Worship and then we'll finish. 